0: I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Journal Jam podcast. At this year's Resuscitation in Motion conference, I recorded a live podcast with four of the world's leading researchers in cardiac arrest for EM cases. And among other topics, I asked them their opinions on the timing, dose, and specific indications for epinephrine in cardiac arrest. And no surprise, there wasn't. Even any consensus on whether or not to give epinephrine in the first place. There wasn't even any consensus on timing or dose either, except maybe the earlier the better. There wasn't any consensus on which patients are most likely to benefit from epinephrine, even. Some cited papers showing higher doses and earlier administration of epi increasing ROSC rates, while others cited papers showing lower doses improving cerebral perfusion pressure. There was talk about titrating epi to a diastolic blood pressure from an art line, which some docs have apparently adopted in their practice. There was also talk about titrating to infrared spectroscopy cerebral oxygenation, which sounds kind of promising, but has a whole slew of practical problems and no promising outcome data. Now, this resuscitation and motion conference was held just before the huge Paramedic 2 trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I got to tell you, Paramedic 2 has sparked an explosion of activity in the foam world, which, of course, we're going to get to in this podcast. Now, all this aside, the big question remains, does epinephrine improve the chances of return of spontaneous circulation at the expense of the brain? In other words, while we know that epinephrine doubles rates of ROSC in all comers in cardiac arrest, there's never been robust evidence for long-term improvements in neurological functional outcomes. So are we saving lives or are we prolonging death? So with this question in mind, Rory, let's hear a quick overview of what we'll cover in this journal, gem.
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk about paramedic 2, and as you said, there's been a ton discussed about this in the foam world, and personally, I feel that paramedic 2 is a pretty definitive study, and I think we're going to dive into the reasons why. I think we tend to get stuck in the statistical milieu or the statistical weeds with a study like this, um, but there's a couple things we have to keep in mind when interpreting the results of paramedic 2, and we've got to kind of take it in context in what we do know and what we don't know about the use of epinephrine in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And so, as you said, what we do know is epinephrine restarts hearts, and we'll see in the review of the studies we look at, patients who are treated with epinephrine more frequently achieve ROS, hospital survival, survival to ICU, admission, et cetera, et cetera. What we don't know is what these survivors represent, and I think we can separate this into three different possibilities. Epinephrine saves lives as we all hope it does. This increase in ROS translates into an increase in neurologically intact survivors. The second option is epinephrine saves hearts, but not minds. The increase in ROS translates into an increase in survivors, but it's a cohort of patients that are neurologically devastated. And the epi isn't causing this neurological injury, but it's allowing a group of patients to survive in whom their initial cardiac arrest caused irreversible damage. And the third option is epi saves lives, but it hurts minds. The epinephrine may cause an increase in the rate of ROS, but this is at a cost of decreased blood flow to the brain and is directly responsible for an increase in neurological injury.
0: All right, let me just see if I have those three possibilities straight. So the first possibility is epi saves lives and neurologically intact survivors. The second possibility is epi saves lives, but it's too late to save brains. And then lastly, epi saves lives, but it actually directly hurts brains. Okay. So let's look at the literature to figure out which one of these is the most likely answer. Justin? Yeah, so We've got a a ton of data to get through here. There's some old observational data, a
2: few RCTs, and obviously the paramedic trial itself. And then we can probably spend a little bit of time going into uh, a little bit of discussion on the timing and the dosing of epinephrine in cardiac arrest as well.
0: All right. Well, let's start with the question of how do we know epi leads to increased rates of ROS, hospital admission, and survival to discharge?
1: Yeah, so we're going to dive into a few papers looking at this. Uh, The first is is a classic paper now in emergency medicine, the OPALS trial, which was published in the New England Journal in 2004. And this was a prospective observational cohort, which the authors instituted at the same time as an advanced life support program in Ontario, Canada. So essentially, they had an EMS agency that was doing BLS, and at the time, they were rolling in an ACLS program, and they wanted to see what happened before and after this. And so the authors examined about 1,391 patients in the pre-ACLS phase when the paramedics were only performing CPR and rapid defibrillation. And afterwards, they examined about 4,247 patients. They noted an increased rate in ROSC and survivors to hospital admissions in the patients enrolled during the ACLS period, but they also noted no difference in survival to hospital discharge. Now, this wasn't an RCT, so there's lots of issues with the study, There might have been other changes during this period that caused a decrease in survival in the patients in the ACL group that distorts these results. Also, this wasn't an epi versus no epi study, but rather ACLS versus no ACLS. And so to isolate the benefits or harms of EFRI alone may be somewhat difficult. That being said, it was a large, well-done study that seems to compare two fairly similar groups and the authors were unable to find a benefit with the addition of ACLS to CPR and rapid defibrillation.
0: All right. Well, yeah, for me, this study was one of the important ones that actually helped establish that the most important aspects of cardiac arrest care were chest compressions and rapid DFib. You know, adding the ACLS protocol, which included epi, did increase ROSC rates and survival to admission, but not to hospital discharge. So Justin, what's your take on this uh, OPAL study? Yeah. So the OPAL
2: trial is a classic. It isn't perfect, but we spent a ton of money to introduce ACLS across the province, and ACLS didn't help. In fact, you know, I always interpreted uh, this study as showing that it harmed patients because it put a bunch of patients into the hospital that had no chance of leaving. Now, there's actually another study with very similar methodology to OPALS that I somehow missed when it first came out. So this is by Ong in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2007, and it's another before and after study. So this is in Singapore, and they introduced epinephrine for cardiac arrest in the EMS setting uh, in 2003. And so this study compares the year before epinephrine was introduced to the year after. And they studied 1,300 cases of cardiac arrest in patients eight years old or older. So in the year after epinephrine was reduced, only about half of uh, patients actually got it. So it's not a perfect compa- uh, comparison, but it's it's a reasonable trial. Now, in this trial, there was no difference at all in the survival-to-hospital discharge, although, to be honest, the outcomes were pretty dismal in both groups. It was 1% versus 1.6%. There was also no change in ROSC in this trial, uh, 18% versus 16%, but it seems a little bit strange because EPI is pretty consistently uh, increases ROSC across these trials. Now, you know, I don't think this data is as convincing as the OPALS trial. But really, the results are very similar. If you introduce epinephrine to an EMS service, you should not expect to see any increase in survival to hospital discharge.
0: Okay, so so far we have improved rates of ROSC and admission to hospital and a couple of observational studies. Uh, Are there any RCTs looking at the same thing?
1: Yeah, so the first uh, of these trials we can look at was published in JAMA in 2009 by Ulsa Vegan et al. Uh, And it was an RCT, but it isn't an RCT randomizing patients to epi or no epi, but rather it's an RCT randomizing patients to whether they should get an IV started during their cardiac arrest. And with that IV comes all the ACLS medications that we know. So the authors randomized approximately 800 patients, To either getting an IV and receiving ACLS medications, which included epi, or to getting no IV and getting um, chest compressions and defibrillation. And again, when they were randomized to receive the ACLS medications, including epinephrine, the authors observed that the patients achieved ROSC far more frequently than when they didn't uh, receive the, the IV medications. But the rate of hospital survival and survival with good neurological outcome was the same in both groups.
0: So the 2009 RCT then showed pretty much the same thing as the 2004 and 2007 observational studies that adding ACLS improved ROSC and admission rates, but that was about it. Justin, are there any epi-specific RCTs, you know, as opposed to the whole ACLS bundle um, besides the paramedic two that are worth talking about? Absolutely. So the best
2: trial that we had prior to paramedic 2 was Jacobs et al. in resuscitation 2011. Now, this is a double-blind RCT of epinephrine versus placebo, exactly what we want. So this was supposed to be the definitive study on epinephrine in cardiac arrest. Now, the authors had originally intended on enrolling approximately 5,000 patients, but they ran into some problems. Unfortunately, the media and some politicians got involved, and a bunch of EMS services actually had to pull out of the trial. Uh, And so they were only able to enroll a little over 500 patients instead of the 5,000 that they intended. And so the trial was a little bit flawed right from the outset. So, similar to previous trials that we discussed, these authors found that patients who received epinephrine did have much higher rates of ROSC than those patients who were randomized to placebo. But there was no difference in the rate of survival to hospital discharge. Now, unfortunately, like we said, they only got a 10th of the patients that they wanted. And there was a 2% difference between the two groups in terms of mortality. It was 2% in the placebo group and 4% in the epinephrine group. So this trial might have been underpowered. So instead of giving us the definitive study that we were hoping for, we've all just been left waiting for paramedic two to come out.
0: Okay, so it seems clear then that Epi does lead to more ROSC and survival to hospital admission. There seems to be some conflicting data over survival overall, uh, which we can address when we talk about paramedic too. But why are we concerned it may lead to worse neurologic outcomes?
2: Yeah, so to really answer that question, we have to get back into the observational data. And you might wonder why bother with the observational data when we just had this big RCT that everybody's talking about? But the vast majority of the data that we had before Paramedic 2 was observational. That's the data that formed our current ACLS guidelines. So I think it's really important to know where we stood before Paramedic 2 to help us interpret that study. So getting into some of these observational studies, uh, the first one we have here is Heinberg in resuscitation 2002. So this trial is a big prospectively collected uh, database based out of Sweden. And between 1990 and 1995, they looked at almost 11,000 patients who had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and 42% of them had received epinephrine. Now, in this trial, epinephrine was associated with an increase in one-month mortality. It was 63 versus 3.4%, and that was true across all the subgroups that they looked at. Now, of course, there's some caveats here. These groups don't look balanced at the outset, and you know this is data from the early 1990s, and ACLS protocols were pretty different back then. But the bottom line is, in our first trial, epinephrine is associated with an increased mortality. That does make it a bit of an outlier, but it's important to know that there's some
0: inconsistency in the results of these trials. That's pretty interesting, but hard to take much away from that study when cardiac arrest care has changed so drastically over the 25 years since since the study came out. You know, I suppose what we can take away is that epinephrine isn't a totally benign drug in cardiac arrest, that that not only are there physiologic reasons why epinephrine might not be so great for the brain, but that there is some old observational data that does show harm. R- Rory, are, th- are there any other studies showing possible harm with epinephrine in cardiac arrest?
1: Yeah, so the next paper we're going to discuss is Hagahara et al, published in JAMA in 2012. And this was a huge prospective registry data set collected in Japan on patients without out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They looked at over 400,000 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest over a four-year period. And no surprise, the patients who received epinephrine had a higher rate of ROS than the patients who didn't. The raw numbers were about 19% versus 6%. When the authors did a propensity-matched analysis, the numbers were still higher in the epinephrine group, 18% versus 11%. Survival at one month was slightly higher in the epinephrine group when looking at the raw data, 5.4% versus 4.7%. However, in the adjusted analysis, the epinephrine group had a lower rate of survival. Now, the important part of what we're talking about here is survival with good neurological outcome was lower in the epinephrine group, 1.4% versus 2.2%. At first glance, despite an increase in ROSC, epinephrine might be causing neurological harm. However, this paper was far from perfect. These two groups were not balanced at all in some really important key Um, factors such as bystander CPR and shockable rhythm, both of which suggest usually the patients are going to have a worse outcome. And there's definitely some selection bias going on as epinephrine was very rarely used in this setting. Only about 15,000 patients were given epinephrine compared to over 400,000 patients who were not. So the big question is that when this big observational trial, are we really looking at two groups that are similar with everything except for receiving epinephrine? I would say no. I would say there's a lot of confounders here that are gonna affect these results.
0: Ah, the old confounding variables rearing their ugly heads. So a really, really big registry, almost half a million patients showing worse one-month survival with epi, but hard to make conclusions because of the confounding variables. I guess, you know, suffice to say that there was a hint at possible harm from epi. Justin, were there any other studies where they tried to minimize the confounding variables? Yeah. So this next paper is actually from the same large
2: Japanese registry. And you know, that's one of the problems when you look at this data, a lot of it comes from the exact same registries over and over again. But this paper is Nakahara in BMJ 2013. And this study also looks at adults without a hospital cardiac arrest. And this time they limited only to patients who had bystander witnessed arrest. Now, what makes this paper a little bit different from the last one is that they try to do propensity matching, uh, which means they take patients who were given epinephrine, and they try to match them on a number of different variables, one-to-one, with patients who were not given epinephrine. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that it always works, but it's probably better than the straight observational data that we look at. So in this trial, they divide it up into two different groups, just assuming that shockable rhythms are different from non-shockable rhythms. So if you look at the group of patients who had a shockable arrest, epinephrine was associated with a higher rate of one-month survival, but not a higher rate of neurologically intact survival. So it was 17 versus 13% who were alive, but only 6% of both groups were alive with good neurologic outcomes. Now, if you look at the group of patients who had a non-shockable rhythm, epinephrine was associated with a higher rate of one-month survival, 4 versus 2%, so not great numbers overall, and it was actually associated with a higher rate of neurologically intact survival. But the numbers were tiny. It was 07 versus 0.4%, which is statistically significant because of the really large numbers here, but that's a pretty small difference. Now, like I said, I'm always a little bit wary of propensity matching because to do this kind of research, you have to make a lot of assumptions, and those assumptions can really sway the results. The important confounders here are not always obvious because, again, these patients weren't randomized. Somebody made the decision to either use or not use epinephrine, and to me, that's the key confounder in these results.
0: Right. So not as good as an RCT. Uh, you know, w- one of the major confounding variables in my eyes is the initial rhythm. So we know that a VF arrest, of course, is a whole different beast compared to an asystolic arrest, for example. Rory, are there any studies that looked specifically at different initial presenting rhythms, or or at least looked at those subgroups?
1: Yeah, there, so there was another one of these big studies out of the same Japanese registry by Goto et al, um, published in Critical Care Medicine in 2013, and it covers a similar time frame as the previous two studies, so I'm sure some of the same patients are included, um, and this time they looked at a little over 200,000 patients without of hospital cardiac arrest and divided them into shockable or non-shockable groups. And again, they looked at who received epinephrine and who didn't. And in the shockable group, epinephrine was associated with worse outcomes across the board less ROSC, 15 versus 28%, worse one month survival, 19 versus 23%, and survival with good neurological outcome was about the same, 7 versus 5%. In the non shockable rhythm group, epinephrine was associated with more ROSC, 19 versus 4%, and an increase in one month survival, three first 2%, but there was no difference in neurological outcome. So, you know, again, I think most of this is based on the patients rather than the epinephrine. You know, if you look at a group of patients with shockable rhythm, if you get shocked early before you have a chance to receive epinephrine, you're gonna do much better than if you actually were still in V-fib long enough to actually receive a dose or two of epinephrine. So I think that's the big factor we're seeing there in the shockable group. And um, in the non-shockable group, I think it's pretty clear that we're seeing what we're what we see always: that you have an increased rate of ROSC, in possible increased rate of survival, but no difference in neurologically intact survival.
0: All right. So we've talked a lot so far about ROSC, hospital admission rates, and survival to discharge. But again, what I really want to know is survival with good neurologic outcome. Uh, Justin, are there any observational data on how these patients' brains were doing in the long run before we get to uh, the Paramedic 2 trial? Yeah, so the final paper in this series of observational trials that we're looking to look at
2: comparing epinephrine to no epinephrine is by Dumas in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, 2014. Now, this is another large cardiac arrest registry, this time from Paris. Now, this paper is a little bit different because this time they decided to only look at the patients who were admitted to hospital after ROSC. And really, they were just interested in the neurologic outcomes of those patients. So in the study, they included just over 1,500 cardiac arrest patients, 73% of whom received epinephrine. Now, in the epinephrine group, only 17% of patients had a good neurologic outcome, and they were using something called the cerebral performance uh, category, and it was a score of one or two that was a good outcome. People people can look that up. In the no epinephrine group, 63% had a good outcome. That's a huge difference. 17% with epinephrine, 63% without epinephrine. So once again, it really looks like epinephrine is causing harm from a neurologic standpoint. But this study does have flaws. The groups were not well matched. The group that didn't get epinephrine, was more likely to have a shockable rhythm and a short resuscitation. And what I imagine that we're seeing here is at least partly related to something called survivorship bias. Healthier patients get ROSC early, and there just isn't time to give them epinephrine. Whereas sick patients have longer resuscitations, allowing for epinephrine to be given, but it's not surprising that they have bad outcomes.
0: Yeah, besides the usual problems with observational studies, survivorship bias is a key one to understand in all this cardiac arrest literature. You know, it makes perfect sense to me that those who achieve ROSC within a few minutes from chest compressions and rapid defib would do a lot better than those who needed prolonged resuscitations with multiple doses of epi. So keeping in mind survivorship bias and the confounding variables and all the other problems with observational studies, let's try to tidy things up a little bit here. What should we take away from all these observational trials?
2: Yeah, so my personal takeaway, I think it was worthwhile to go through all these observational trials, but I think this observational data is just fundamentally flawed. It's not likely to answer the question that we want we we want to ask, which is, does epinephrine help our cardiac arrest patients? Because we're not comparing a group of patients who got epinephrine to a group of patients who didn't. What we're really comparing is a group of patients where the provider, a a trained clinician, either decided not to give epinephrine or was simply unable to, to a group of patients who got standard care. And that decision is key. There are just so many potential confounders hidden in this data. You know, I could imagine that younger patients with shorter downtimes are more likely to get epinephrine because we definitely don't want to give up on those patients. On the other hand, older patients with multiple comorbidities might have a truncated resuscitation without epinephrine because their expectation of survival is so much lower at the outset. And if that's true, the difference could be entirely driven by the expected survival of patients before epinephrine was given rather than the epinephrine itself. On the other hand, you know, codes that run for a very long time are generally going to have a bad outcome, but the longer a code runs, the more likely it is that epinephrine is going to be given, which could make epinephrine look really bad. So if you really pushed me here to, to come up with a final conclusion from the observational data, I think that the observational data shows a pretty clear association between epinephrine and ROSC but there doesn't seem to be any real patient-oriented benefit. And it's really hard to say because of the nature of the data, but I think that there's a signal that epinephrine could be causing neurologic harm.
1: Yeah, so I I think Justin said it perfectly, and I think this data does frame what we know and what questions we hope Paramedic 2 would answer. Um, As you said, I think it's pretty clear through both the randomized controlled trial data and the observational data that, giving epi leads to more ROSC, but the question is in who and what are we actually achieving Um, are these patients that were actually gonna get ROSC, get them through their hospital stay and they're gonna come out the other end getting back to the life they wanted to live or are we just flogging a dead and a a heart on a patient who's going to go on to either die in the icu or if they do survive their icu stay be neurologically devastated Um, and i think what we want to answer from paramedic two is that was the 2% difference in survival that we saw in the Jacobs trial? Was that an actual true survival that was that the Jacobs trial was just too underpowered to identify? Or was it just random chance? And what we're going to see in paramedic two is essentially no difference in survival. And then the next thing is, is epinephrine actually causing neurological harm? Are we decreasing blood flow to the brain during the arrest period? And so if we do get them back, we actually have less survivors in the end.
0: All right, so let's get on to paramedic two. This is what we've all been waiting for. We know that epi increases the rate of ROSC, and study after study has demonstrated this. We know that it may even increase the number of patients discharged from hospital alive. But again, the big question that we hope to answer from paramedic two is, are we talking survival benefit in patients with a good neurologic outcome, or are we just flogging dead people and maybe in some cases bring back a few neurologically devastated survivors with maybe a scant few who are functional in the long run. Rory? Rory
1: All right, so uh, paramedic two. So this was a multi-center, double-blind randomized control trial, and they enrolled adult patients who experienced out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, which they defined as sustained and refractory to initial resuscitative attempts, Um, which was defined as no response to initial round of CPR and defibrillation. And the patients were randomized to receive one milligram of epinephrine or a matching syringe of normal saline, given either IV or IO every three to five minutes. And so of the little over 10,000 patients screened, the authors enrolled 8,014 patients. And this is what was included in the final analysis, 4,015 patients in the epinephrine group and 3,999 patients in the placebo group. You know, as one was expected with 8,000 patients, the two groups were fairly well balanced. The population was pretty typical of what we see in studies looking at patients without a hospital cardiac arrest. The mean age was about 69, 65% were male, and about 20% of the patients had an initial shockable rhythm. were witnessed by bystanders, and 59% received bystander CPR prior to EMS survival. Like the other studies we looked at, the authors reported an increase in the number of patients who were transported to the hospital, 50% versus 30%, and survived to ICU emission, 14% versus 6.8%. But this time, the authors did find the statistical difference in their primary outcome, 30-day survival. 3.2% in the epinephrine group versus 2.4% in the placebo group. And they cite a p-value of 0.02. So this 0.8% absolute survival actually remained consistent at three months, which was 3% in the epinephrine group and 2.2% in the non-epinephrine group or in the placebo group. And it translated to a number needed to treat of 112 patients to prevent one death at 30 days.
0: So listeners at this point might be thinking, so we're done, right? I mean, epinephrine saves lives in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, number needs to treat of 112. But we still haven't mentioned yet the outcomes in terms of favorable neurological outcome, which is really what I want to know. So again, are we saving lives or prolonging death? So my read of paramedic two is that it didn't show any benefit at hospital discharge or at three months for a modified Rankin score of three or less. So a modified Rankin score of three is moderate disability requiring some help, but able to walk without assistance. So that or better than that, it didn't show any benefit at hospital discharge or at three months So this would make me think that there's really no benefit of epinephrine in cardiac arrest when it comes to saving patients' brains or quality of life, right? Or, I don't know, is it not that simple? Yeah. So, you know, improved survival was not that
1: unexpected a result. We knew epinephrine increased the rates of ROSC and survival to hospital admission, and it's not that surprising that a few of those patients went on to survive to hospital discharge. In fact, I was shocked that there was only a 0.8% absolute difference in survival to hospital discharge, which is tiny. The real question is, what was the neurologically intact survival? Does epinephrine save meaningful lives, or does it just bring back a cohort of patients who are neurologically impaired? Yeah, and you know, that's really the key question. And when I read through this trial, you know,
2: I keep, I keep reading it through, I think there are a couple of different ways that you can look at the numbers in this trial. There doesn't seem to be any doubt that some of the extra lives saved actually had a bad outcome. In terms of patients with severe neurologic disability, a modified ranking score of four or five, the epi group looks a lot worse. 31% of the survivors in the epi group had severe neurologic
0: disability as compared to only 17% of the placebo group. Wait, so there are more patients with neurologic disability in the epinephrine group, really? Yeah, so epi causes
2: some harm. I don't think there's any doubt about that from these numbers. But it isn't clear to me that epi only causes harm. So let's just pause for a second and look at the numbers here at face value. Forget about statistics for a second, and you can't really do that. You got to remember that there are confidence intervals around all these numbers, but I just want to look at the absolute numbers in these trials. So for every 1,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, the use of epinephrine will result in 246 extra cases of ROSC, 158 extra admissions to hospital, and 8 extra survivors at 30 days. Of those eight extra survivors, three would have a good neurologic outcome and five would have a bad outcome. So we can quibble about the accuracy of some of those numbers and we can talk about confidence intervals and statistics. But I think the real question here is what do those numbers mean? How do you compare the benefit of one saved life, one good neurologic outcome with all the harms that come with it? The bad neurologic outcomes, the patient is admitted to the hospital with zero chance of surviving, the cost of ICU care. How do you compare those outcomes? And I'm making a a really big assumption here. I'm assuming that the tiny, non-statistically significant difference seen in good neurologic outcomes in this trial is real, that the trial was underpowered, and that might not be a good assumption. In fact, if you look at the Bayesian analysis that they performed here, they tell us that the chance that epinephrine will result in a 1% improvement in good neurologic outcomes based on the results of this trial is only 1.9%. So the best conclusion is probably that epinephrine does not help. But I make the assumption that it does on purpose because I think it brings us to the most important question. And that's the question we really need to answer before we move on with this research and probably before we move on clinically. And it's a qualitative question. It's a question of value. What is one life worth? How much harm? How many bad outcomes? Bad deaths? Neurologic disabilities are we willing to accept to save one life? And honestly, I don't have an answer. What do you guys think?
0: Again, there is improved survival, but at the cost of these long ICU stays and poor neurologic outcomes, you know, this is really reminiscent of our discussion on lytics for stroke in another journal jam. Lytics may improve survival, but at the cost of not so great brain function. But in the case of lytics, at least some of those patients, you can have a discussion with them about what they'd prefer and really get to what their values are, you know, get into that whole shared decision-making thing. But in the cardiac arrest patient, of course, they're not really in a chatting mood, and there's no time to discuss things with the family in most cases. So this leaves us with societal values dictating what's right. And what societal values are exactly when it comes to weighing survival uh, with not so great neurologic function versus no survival at all, uh, I don't think we'll really ever know You know, on the one hand, some would argue that all lives are precious and we should try to save lives at all costs. Others would say dying slowly as opposed to suddenly is horrible and the resources burned up in thousands of hours of ICU care for cardiac arrest survivors could be used a lot more wisely. So I don't really have an answer either. It's really a values question, which I don't think we're ever going to get a definitive answer on.
1: You know, I I think... I think paramedic 2 has given us a lot of definitive answers. I think, you know, it's answered a lot of the questions that that we kind of addressed at the start of this um, this podcast. Um, it obviously confirmed the fact that epinephrine increases ROSC and, and survival to hospital admission. It also confirmed the fact that, you know, the the Jacob study um overestimated the survival to hospital discharge and and the true survival is is minuscule less than one percent increase in survival to hospital discharge a tiny tiny amount um as far as survival with good neurological outcome you know i'm i'm inclined to say this is this is a completely negative study um you know you could you could suggest that it might be Uh, underpowered to detect a tiny, tiny survival. But you could say that about any study, you know, and it's a way to suggest that no study is good enough power to answer the question we want. If there is a difference, it's so, so small, and it comes at the cost of so many resources that it cannot be clinically important. So, you know, from that standpoint, I I think paramedic does answer most of the questions that we wanted it to, and I think it's a fairly negative study suggesting that epinephrine really doesn't provide much um, for our patients in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest.
2: Yeah, you know, I would get back to what you were saying, Anton. Maybe the best part of the study, and this is a great study, but maybe the best part for me is that before they started, they actually surveyed just normal people, potential patients, about what the most important outcomes were to them. And people are clear. The thing that matters to them is not just survival but it's a good functional survival. It's survival with good neurologic outcomes. So even though these value questions can't really be answered in an RCT type scenario, I do think that there are are questions that we should approach through qualitative research. There There are questions that we should explore because they're questions that shouldn't just be left to the treating physician day of.
1: I think the other thing, if you if you actually ask clinicians before this study came out, if they took an 8,000 patient study and found that whatever trial drug, we can use epinephrine for this, but let's say whatever magical drug we wanna use found a less than 1% survival benefit and no difference in neurologically intact survival, I don't think, I think to a person, everyone would say that's a negative study. But all of a sudden, we see a p value that happens to be statistically significant, and now we're debating over these minuscule numbers.
0: All right, so we'll leave our, our listeners to um, come up with their, their own conclusions there. What about the timing question in Paramedic 2? The thing that I found uh, interesting was that the mean time to epi-administration was about 20 minutes. Now, that's a really long time. You know, we know that the earlier that DFib is given in VF arrest, the better the survival. Um, you know, is the same thing true for epinephrine in cardiac arrest? So, Justin, I think to get an answer to the timing question, we need to look at the previous observational data on timing, uh, and then we'll get into the paramedic too in terms of the timing. Uh, Justin, can you run through that for us? Yeah, so there were two big observational trials
2: that came out in 2017 before Paramedic uh, 2 came out. And and the honest truth is I I skipped over them when they came out because the methodology just isn't that great. Uh, But because everybody was talking about them, I think they are worth exploring a little bit. So the first one is uh, Sagasaka in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2017. And this, again, is one of those giant uh, Japanese cardiac arrest registries, and they looked retrospectively at that registry with with two goals. They they wanted to look at the number of doses of epinephrine and the timing of epinephrine as they relate to good neurologic outcomes. So during the study period, there were almost 400,000 cardiac arrests in the registry over three years. But they had very extensive exclusion criteria, so they only end up with a sample of about uh, 11,800 patients. So, So keep in mind right from the beginning, this is an extremely select group of patients, which is a pretty big limitation right off the bat. In terms of the timing of epinephrine, they divide these groups up into early, intermediate, and late. And I'll tell you, I'm not really sure about these cutoffs here, but early meant 0 to 20 minutes, intermediate meant 21 to 26 minutes, and late meant 27 to 60 minutes. You know, I'm not really sure that 20 minutes counts as early, but those are the cutoffs that they used in this trial. Now, overall, I don't think the results of this trial are all that surprising considering everything that we've talked about. The more epinephrine that you got, the worse that you did both in terms of overall survival and in terms of the primary outcome, survival with good neurologic outcome at one month. Overall, good neurologic survival was 5% with one milligram of epinephrine, 2.5% with two doses, and only 1.7% if you got three or more doses. Now, of course, that association almost certainly has nothing to do with the dose of epinephrine. Patients who get ROSC early get less epinephrine patients who never get ROSC get more epinephrine. So this is almost certainly survivorship bias. So the outcome that got a lot of press from this trial was that both overall survival and neurologically intact survival were worse with longer delays to epinephrine. So it was 5% in the early group, 2.5% in the intermediate group, and just under 1% in the late group. But again, I think this association has a lot more to do with the patients than it does with the epinephrine group. Why was the epinephrine given so late? It's not like we just stand around for 45 minutes and decide not to give epinephrine. So I think this has a lot more to do with something that's going on at the patient level rather than an epinephrine effect itself. Now, I will say, when I first read this study, the, number, the cutoffs they used here drove me a little bit crazy, right? Because 20 minutes just really does not sound that early to me. But. In a real-world setting, when you actually look at the numbers in in this trial, there were basically even numbers in each of their groups. So that means only one-third of patients got epinephrine in less than 20 minutes in a real-world setting. And and you know, I think that number gives you a lot of insight into paramedic 2. So that average time in paramedic 2 of 21 minutes to epinephrine uh, is exactly in keeping with what they saw in this massive registry in Japan. So it's not like they were doing anything bad
1: in paramedic 2 so the other paper which is very similar to the one that justin just talked about in regards to timing and epinephrine with Uta et al, published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2017. And yes, this was another big retrospective look at this Japanese uh, cardiac arrest registry. And similar to the last paper, they took a very select cohort of patients, about 13,000 out of 500,000 cardiac arrest patients. And again, they were looking at early versus late administration of epinephrine. And what they found was early administration of epinephrine was, again, associated with improved survival with good neurological outcome at one month, 6% versus 4%. Um, And when they broke it down per time, if EMS got there in less than eight minutes, survival was about 6%, and 4% if they got there after eight minutes, and only 1.4% if they got there after 16 minutes. And this was the kind of stuff that got everyone really excited. And obviously, you know, from a resuscitative outlook on cardiac arrest, there is some face validity. The earlier you get epinephrine on board, the higher your uh, coronary perfusion pressure and the more likely you are to achieve ROSC. I think there's a lot of big issues with this study. The biggest one probably is I think this is, uh, you know, the – The administration of epinephrine, for the most part, is a marker of arrival of EMS. Um, And we know earlier patients get CPR, the earlier they get defibrillated, the better they do. Because like Justin said, why would anyone just get there, arrive, and wait 40 minutes to give epinephrine? So I think mostly this is a surrogate for arrival of EMS to the patient themselves. So, you know, when we take this data and we kind of apply it to paramedic 2, and sure, you know, the fact that the average time to receive epinephrine in paramedic 2 is 22 minutes, there is some question of the validity of the study. But I think when you actually go deeper and look into paramedic 2, there is no suggestion that time to epinephrine actually improved the results in the patients who received epinephrine. And you can look at this a couple ways. The simplest, the authors actually did a time to epinephrine analysis and found no improved survival whether you got epinephrine early or whether you got epinephrine late. Remember the 22 minutes with the mean time so there was patients that got it earlier and there was patient got it later and there was no signal and benefit no matter when you got it. Um, And you can look at this in a couple other ways if you actually break down the witnessed or unwitnessed by bystanders or by paramedics. Um, and so we know patients who are unwitnessed have much longer downtimes. Um, so obviously they received their epinephrine later. Um, if you had bystander CPR, you actually usually get the paramedics to you earlier. And then obviously if the paramedics witness you, one would assume that you got your epinephrine very early. There was also no single benefit in those three different groups either. Um, so You know, there is a reasonable argument to say that 22 minutes was a long time. There was no signal of benefit that it seemed to make a difference when you got your epinephrine.
0: Okay, so that's the timing issue. The second issue is dosing. So, you know, the standard ACLS protocol calls for one milligram of EPIQ, three to five minutes for all comers, but we don't really know if that's the best dose. Should we be giving less uh, maybe we should just be giving less to VF patients because, you know, most of those patients are in cardiac arrest because of an MI and squeezing down on the coronaries with huge doses of epi doesn't really make much physiologic sense. Maybe we should be giving less epi just for VF patients and more for other patients. You know, maybe we should be dosing epi according to physiologic need based on diastolic blood pressure from an art line or from end-tidal CO2 or maybe from an infrared spectroscopy headband. So coming back to the Paramedic 2 trial, did it tell us anything about epi dosing? Yeah, you know, this one's always been a little bit of a strange one
2: uh, for me. So if you have a patient in PEA, we give one milligram of epinephrine IV push. But if you waited just 20 seconds and had a pulse check, and now the patient had a pulse, if you give a milligram now, you are way below the standard of care. You know, we don't give a milligram to a patient with a pulse. That dichotomy doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But, you know, maybe before we jump into the paramedic 2 trial, it it might be worth backing up for a little bit of a historical perspective. Because, you know, there was a time when high-dose epinephrine was all the rage. You know, people were using doses between, you know, 7 and 15 milligrams at a time, and I guess we could go through all the individual papers, but it's probably not overly worthwhile. If anyone's really interested, I will include them on the blog post. that always goes with the uh, podcast. Uh, but I think for our purposes, it's probably good enough just to look at the systematic review and meta-analysis that asked this question. Uh, and the paper I'm referring to is by Lynn in Resuscitation 2014. And in their meta-analysis, high-dose epinephrine resulted in more ROSC and increase in survival to hospital admission. However, there were no differences in survival to discharge or good neurologic outcome. So to me, going to a higher dose sounds a lot like just using any epinephrine at all. It increases ROSC, but it doesn't improve patient-oriented outcomes.
1: Yeah, so when you keep that in mind, you can kind of look at paramedic too, and the question they're asking was one milligram epinephrine empirically the right dose? And, and you know the short answer is we'll never really know until you do a study where you either titrate your epinephrine dose into physiological numbers, but we do know one do- one milligram epinephrine empirically is essentially no different placebo. We also know from this historical data that more epinephrine isn't better. So the only really way, at least from a pe- an empirical standpoint, you could say is, hey, maybe less epinephrine, 0.5 milligrams would be better than one milligram epinephrine. I'm not really sure that that's really a, you know, a train of research that's going to bring us any better outcomes. You know, at least from my look on this data, there was no benefit to giving the epinephrine from a standpoint of increasing the, the rate of neurologically intact survivors. In fact, there was no benefit to giving more epinephrine, even though you had more ROSC. So the only way you could kind of conceivably think that giving less epinephrine might be better is... Because the epinephrine itself is doing harm and you get more neurologically intact survivors because you have a group of patients that you didn't decrease the blood supply to the brain and then you manage to get them back. At least from my look at paramedic too, when you look at the, the shift in outcomes, the patients that seem to have an increase in neurologically devastating outcomes, seem to be coming from the fact that more patients survived in the epinephrine group. So you shifted patients who would be otherwise dead to being neurologically devastated. There didn't seem to be really much of a shift from neurologically intact to worse neurological outcomes. So I don't think simply by decreasing your empiric dose of epinephrine, you're going to have better outcomes because you've now salvaged some neurologically intact patients. So I think the only question we have left, we know that higher dose epinephrine is not better than standard dose epinephrine. We know that standard dose epinephrine is essentially no better than no epinephrine. The only question I think we have left unanswered is physiologically titrated epinephrine, is that better than no epinephrine? Or is that better than one milligram of epinephrine every three to five minutes?
2: Yeah, and I totally agree with all that. I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that cardiac arrest really isn't just one disease. VF and PEA are are very different. And if you think about the PEA, where you put an ultrasound on the chest and the heart is squeezing, you can see it beating, we define PEA basically on, I can't feel a pulse with my fingers, which I have to say is is one of the least accurate tools, one of the least accurate instruments that I use in all of medicine. So, you know, if, if this patient had a blood pressure of 40 on 20 and I could feel a pulse, I'd be running a, an infusion of epinephrine, you know, maybe 20 mics per per minute. Not that that has great evidence either, but I'm not going to be a a, a nihilist. I need to treat this patient with with something, but the dosing range is about, you know, five, 10, 20 micrograms per minute of epinephrine. Now you take that exact same patient. And if I just happen not to be able to feel the pulse with my finger, I'm going to transition from 20 micrograms to 1000 micrograms pushed. That seems a little bit crazy. So I do think that there's probably going to be a role uh, for using vasopressors and epinephrine being being one of them in these PA patients who I, I think we probably should just be referring to as profound shock rather than relying so much on on feeling a pulse. Uh, and the idea would be to use a vasopressor as a temporizing agent while we search for the underlying cause of their shock. So I do think overall there's going to be some clinical judgment uh, here. You know, I, I think you're going to have to do something while you search for the underlying cause and and, and hopefully treat it. So it probably doesn't help us to just talk about all cardiac arrests as if they're all exactly the same. But I do think that the idea of just empirically pushing one milligram of epinephrine in every single cardiac arrest as if they're all the same uh, is probably pretty much dead after this trial.
1: And, you know, I think that leads to a bigger question. And the question is, why have all these epinephrine studies failed? And, in fact, why has every RCT examined any resuscitative technique in in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest failed. And I think maybe it's a flaw in our outlook or our model on cardiac arrest. I think we have to start moving away from this resuscitative model or, you know, the fact that if we can increase this coronary perfusion pressure, we can bring these patients back. I think we have to more focus on kind of what the evidence really suggests is beneficial. I mean, every study that you've ever looked at that's found the benefit, whether that's, you know, doing CPR and defibrillation in casinos or the recent paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine where they brought aeds to road races and did rapid defibrillation or any of the other studies it's been a bridging to a definitive therapy that has really shown a difference in this case doing cpr until you could bridge them to a shock and i think we kind of have to move more to a model like that whether it is simple defibrillation or you know in these bigger centers moving towards an ecmo kind of model but understanding that you are not going to resuscitate these people by just simply giving more epinephrine and getting their coronary perfusion pressure back better or doing better CPR with these mechanical devices. And that in and of itself is not going to save patients. It's simply a bridge to something else that we can do.
0: All right, so guys, next time you have a patient that comes in in cardiac arrest, let's say it's a 55-year-old female who collapsed at home, and they roll into your resuscitation bay um, at minute 20, they've had uh, three shocks, uh, no return of of spontaneous circulation, and they've had one dose of epi, let's say. What are you going to do? Are you going to use epi, not use epi? What are you going to do clinically the next time you see a cardiac arrest patient? So for me, the simple answer is no. I don't want to be using epinephrine,
2: but I think it's probably a little more complex than that. Resuscitation is a team sport, and we definitely should not be debating literature while doing chest compressions on a cardiac arrest patient. So if if epinephrine happens to get pushed in that at that setting, I'm not going to get incredibly upset about it. I, I think this needs to be tackled at a at a much larger uh, setting, uh, at a hospital level at least. But you know, hopefully, ILCOR will update their guidelines when they when they meet again this this year based on this new evidence. But at, at an individual level, if I had if I had my choice, reading this data, I think that
1: epinephrine is probably more likely to do harm than good. Yeah, I think you have to look at this from two perspectives. You have to look at it from the patient-level perspective. What do you do for the patient at that time in that moment? And the other perspective is is how do we view these patients in refractory arrest that are otherwise salvageable? Um, And looking at it at that point, I mean, this patient you've outlined is a VFib patient in refractory arrest. And once they've reached you in the emergency department, the survival with standard resuscitation measures is pretty dismal. Um, And I think, you know— this study would suggest epinephrine is not adding onto that at all. And so I think we have to move forward and start asking how else can we get these patients back with good neurological outcome and kind of shift our research and our evaluation to other methods such as putting them on mechanical device and taking them to the cath lab or doing eCPR or something of sorts. From an individual level I'm somewhat on the same page as Justin. I think, you know, you resuscitate the patient as you can with the resources you have at the time. I used to be somewhat kind of wishy-washy about giving epinephrine. And, you know, if people wanted to give it and I didn't have, let's say, eCPR at the site I was working, so I wasn't actively moving them to another form of information, I thought, what's the harm? Let's give it. But after paramedic two, I've kind of become a little more militaristic about this. I think there's pretty good signs of harm, whether that's from a, um, a resource of, a, of, a, of an individual hospital or towards society. I think this is the exact patient that epinephrine is gonna cause harm. You're in refractory arrest, and you're gonna cause to bring someone back you, who you wouldn't otherwise want to bring back. So I, I'm a little more militant about not giving epinephrine to these patients.
0: Well, you know, I, th- I think we still have a long way to go with epinephrine research. And while it sounds like you guys agree that epinephrine probably causes harm, and in a patient who has maybe received a dose in the field, by the time they get to your emergency department, it's not going to be of much benefit and might actually be of harm, uh, and you wouldn't use it. I don't think epinephrine is completely thrown out of the window just yet. You know, I think we need some more studies on the timing, the dose, the specific indications, on physiological monitoring and on meaningful neurological outcomes, as well as, uh, you know, the values of society, of patients to try and dig in a little bit more of what people really would want. There is a study coming from Paul Dorian, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. He's currently running a study called Epidose that looks at VF patients randomized to three arms, placebo epinephrine 2 milligrams, and standard epinephrine. And this might give us some more insight into whether or not there is any benefit for epinephrine if we use it for more specific indications, you know, maybe at a lower dose. So stay tuned, and hopefully there's some other researchers out there that'll be looking more into these issues, and we'll have a definitive answer on whether or not to use epinephrine in cardiac arrest. Well, great. I look forward to talking to both of you guys again then.
1: Yeah, same here.
0: I just couldn't hold myself back from announcing upcoming in early 2019, ready for it, a new EM Cases kind of podcast. An EM Cases podcast with a new format. An EM Cases podcast that brings together the brightest minds in EM in a different way than the main episode podcast or the Journal Jam podcast. And the new podcast on EM Cases is going to be called EM Quickies. EM Quickies will deliver a series of practice changing nuggets of gold in quick five minute segments from a variety of experts in their particular field. More details to follow.